So 2 Kings 15, starting at verse uh, 32. 32. Let's hear now from God's word. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. And Jotham slept with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, his son, became king in his place. Chapter 16. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and even made his son pass through fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came to Jerusalem to wage war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram and cleared the Judeans out of Elath entirely. And the Arameans came to Elath and have lived there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of of Assyria, saying, quote, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile to cure and put Rezin to death. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw the altar 
which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. So Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Thus Uriah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. When the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. Then the king approached the altar and went up to it and burned his burnt offering and his meal offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. The bronze altar, which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house from between his altar and the house of the Lord and he put it on the north side of his altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening meal offering, and the king's burnt offering, and his meal offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their meal offering, and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering, and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. So Uriah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the labor from them. He also took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it and put it on a pavement of stone. The covered way for the Sabbath, which they had built in the house, and the outer entry of the king, he removed from the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the books of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. Amen. Now, I know that that's a lot of information that we just read, and, and it may seem very complicated. I want to try and make it simple for you by way of really two points that I think will be helpful, hopefully, to us today. The first thing I want us to see is the rise of Assyrian power and influence in this region of the world, the rise of Assyrian power and influence. Now this is going to be a precursor of what's coming because later in, we haven't gotten there historically yet where we are in the book of Kings, but later when we get to 722 BC, we're going to get to what is known as the Assyrian captivity. And this is where, uh, young people, this is where the nation of Assyria came and took away the 10 northern tribes of Israel and, and brought them into exile and then took a lot of people from other nations and put them in the land of Israel. And, and this has consequences even down through the day of Jesus. This is where the Samaritans uh, you know, rise up and, and where you, you've got these people who are half Jews and half Gentiles here. So it, what we're studying and about to study has consequences even down to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ and his own ministry here. So we're beginning now to see the rise of this foreign power. And I want to explain why that's significant, what are, what are the implications 
for us today in the 21st century as a church for something that seemed like took place so long ago. You know, we're talking really 2,700 years ago. Um, why is that significant for us today? So that's going to be number one. Number two, we're going to see that the contagion of apostasy is spreading from the north and now into the south. And the reason that this is significant is not only because it's geographically spreading to all of Judah as well as Israel, but remember the significance about Judah and Benjamin in the south is that that's where the center of worship is. The center of all true religion is to be found in Jerusalem where the temple is located. And so if the apostasy is coming into the very heart of the church, if you will, then we know that things are starting to get even more serious. And this too, in historically speaking, is the beginning of the decline of Judah. Now it's going to be it's going to see some seasons of revival and awakening and reformation. Um, I don't know if you caught that last verse that we read this morning, but it said, after Ahaz dies, then who takes his place as Hezekiah, right? And, and that, of course, will be a great period of reformation for the church. But we are beginning to see what Spurgeon spoke of as the downgrade. Remember, Spurgeon was involved in the 19th century in what was called the downgrade controversy where the church was in Great Britain in the 19th century was beginning to slide uh, into apostasy. And this would be culminated in 586. I'm gonna give, I know I'm not supposed to give you too many dates. I'm, I'm told uh, numbers don't preach too well. But 586 uh, BC um, is where you have the Babylonian captivity. So two dates to remember, 722 in the north and 586 in the south. And we are making our way. We have not even gotten to the Assyrian captivity yet, but that's where we're headed. So let's talk about what we see here. Now, why did I uh, begin with 2 Kings uh, 15? Why, why didn't I end uh, there last time and start in chapter 16? And the reason for that is because at the end of chapter 15, we switch over to the history of Judah. So everything I'm talking about, boys and girls today, we are talking about the, the southern tribes, okay, Judah and Benjamin. We're talking about what's going on in the south chiefly. And that really started at the end of 2 Kings 15. So if you look at verse 32, it says, in the second year of Pekah, now who's Pekah? Pekah is one of the kings of the north. Remember that the last couple of weeks we saw a series of assassinations. One king is king, and then he gets his bumped off, and then another guy takes his place, and he gets bumped off, and and so you have all these series of coup d'etats. Well, Pekah is one of those kings in the series. He murdered uh, his predecessor, and now he is king at the time. And, and that's just a time uh, marker. That's a, a, just a, a little chronology um, hint, if you will, that to let you know what is going on in the other kingdom while this guy is king. So in the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, uh, king of Israel, Jotham, and I did look that up, and it is a, a, a long O. It's not Jotham, it's Jotham, according to the Westminster Dictionary of the Bible. Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now remember, Jotham was what? He was, was kind of king regent, if you will, for a while, because you remember his daddy, Uzziah, was cursed by God. Now Uzziah was a good man, but he did something terrible, 
and that is he took to himself the sacrifice that was reserved for the priesthood, and God caused him to become a leper. Remember, even you know, a good man may make the tragic mistake and have to suffer for it. And so God makes Uzziah a leper. So what are you going to do when you've got a king who's basically hidden away? Remember, the Bible told us that he's not in the king's house, and he doesn't make any more appearances at the temple. So you just don't see him anymore. This is sort of like, you know, a president in hiding. You know, just, you, we don't know where he is. And it caused, you know how, you know, when communists are dying, you know, we always had death watches for, you know, in the 70s and 80s of all these, you know, communist leaders because what happened? They weren't making public appearances anymore. And we were beginning to get suspicious in the intelligence community that's because they were, you know, dying. Remember Reagan had a series of, guys over in Russia die on him until he finally got Gorbachev. But anyway, here we've got Uzziah is in exile, and um, he's in hiding in, in a sort because he's a leper. So his son, Jotham, is actually, I think, kind of serving as the prime minister while his dad is still alive. So Jotham doesn't have the full authority yet, but he's, he is actually, I think, taking on the day-to-day the, the, the -day reign of the kingdom. So he does become king, and remember, Uzziah does die, and, he, and Jotham becomes king, and you remember Isaiah chapter 6 is uh, in the year that Uzziah died. Remember, that's the importance, the significance of the year that Uzziah died was what? God showed his holiness to Isaiah the prophet in the year that Uzziah died, if you remember that chapter, and that I saw the Lord seated high and exalted upon his throne. And the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And uh, Isaiah cries out, I am, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live, what, among a people of unclean lips. So that tells you something about the state, doesn't it, of what we're reading about historically here. We're dealing with a period of, of spiritual decline and so, anyway, we, we see that um, he did what was right, though. He takes his dad's place, Uzziah's place, and he does what's right. Now, we see in verse 35, what? That we see the common sin that, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, the most godly of kings did not seem to get that entrenched sin out of Judah. And that was the worship on the high places and, and we won't cover that. We've covered that a couple times already, what that is. But basically, that was worshiping the Lord in a place that they should not have been worshiping and where God had not commanded him to be worshiped there. So we move on. In those days, the Lord raised up adversaries. And now this is where we get into the rise of the Assyrian power and influence here. In verse 37, it says, In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, who is Rezin, king of Aram. He rules in Damascus. And Pekah who is the son of Remaliah in Judah. So what's happening is this. Jotham has become king, but now there is this development. Maybe they're taking advantage of the fact that he's a young king. Maybe the fact that there's been a turnover. Uzziah is gone. Uzziah had a lot of years of experience. Maybe, you know, nations are trying to take advantage of this new king, test him. Sometimes that happens internationally, doesn't it? We'll test and see how much backbone this guy has, and so, uh, so Pekah and Rezin make an alliance together. Now, this is an unholy alliance. 
because remember that that um, you know Pekah is of Israel and shouldn't be making an alliance with Aram, the nation of Aram. And so we, we really see here how bad things have gotten spiritually in the ten northern tribes when the northern king is willing to do what? He is willing to make an alliance with unbelievers for the purpose of waging war against his own people in the south. Now, the reason that, what does this have to do with Assyria? The long story short is this, is, is that as this begins to unfold and they, they attack Jerusalem, Ahaz does what? Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser. This is after Jotham. You have a new king, Ahaz. And he sends messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria, and he says, I need your help. You've got to come and save me from these two kings that are attacking Jerusalem. And he does what? He clears out the temple treasury. He takes out all the gold and all the silver, and he sends it as a gift to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria, the Bible says, he listened to him, and he came and he brought this deliverance. Now, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, that's what I want to get to here. What you have to understand is this, that God had always promised that if his people were faithful, he would provide the protection they needed. And he would cause them to prosper as a nation, militarily. That was one of the promises involved. Now, the, the, one of the key places that you need to know, especially if you're new to this church and you're visiting, is one of the chapters you need to go home and study is Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because the reason for this is that this sets the uh, covenant with its obligations before the nation of Israel. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy was given to the people of God by Moses prior to their entrance into the land. And God says, I have made a covenant with you, my people. I'm giving you the land. And here is how you're going to prosper as a nation. If you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey, I will bring these curses upon you. And Deuteronomy chapter 28 deals with all the blessings. Let me read you just a few of them to give you a, a sample of it. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, the Bible says here, The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way, and they will flee before you seven ways. Now, what is that based on? It's based on verse 1, which reads as this. Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. That is, they had to obey. Now, listen. The teaching of the Old Testament and the teaching of the New Testament in its essence is the same. That we are in covenant with God by grace through faith in him and in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that faith always must find expression in obedience. This is why 
The, the Bible always says that if you are to have faith in Jesus Christ, you must repent and believe. This is why John the Baptist began his ministry saying, repent and believe. This is why Jesus began his ministry by saying, repent and believe. That is, repentance and faith are two sides of the very same coin. So it, the Bible here is not saying that they are saved in the Old Testament by way of works. A lot of Christians misunderstand this. And they say, oh no, the, the Old Testament, you were saved by works, now we're saved by grace. Uh-uh. They were saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament. And so as a people who had faith in the Lord, as they were to go across the Jordan and take the land, God says, I will bless you, but your, the blessings are contingent upon what? Faith and repentance. Faith and the exercise of that faith in works. This is the whole point of the book of James, that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Israel, who has faith but no works, is dead. Jesus said that you can have a tree, but if it doesn't bear any fruit, it is not good for anything but to be cast into the fire. This is why this is very relevant today because we have a lot of churches and a lot of people who have maybe sincere misunderstandings of the gospel on this point and think that the way they live does not matter because they can point to the date that they walked the aisle of the church or signed the card or raised their hand and the preacher says, I see that hand in the back of the room. And they think that because of that one-time act, of walking an aisle, signing a card, becoming a member, even though they haven't been visiting that church in years, they're okay. They're good. And God is making it clear in the Old Testament, and he makes it clear in the New Testament. If we want to, as the people of God, as a nation of Israel here in the church, be blessed of the God, and we want to have success and victory over our adversaries, then we must be faithful, and that faithfulness is recognized by what? Faith in God and obedience to his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not if you love me, you can ignore my commandments because I, I'm a forgiving guy. No. He says, if you love me, do what I said. Don't be just a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. And so God here, uh, several times over, will say things like this to Israel. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. Now what's happening historically? People are becoming less and less afraid of Israel and Judah, aren't they? They're becoming less and less afraid. Remember in the days of David and Solomon? We are told in the Bible that those foreign nations paid tribute to David and Solomon. And now what do we find? We find the very opposite. We find King Ahaz paying tribute to Tiglath-Pileser. And where is he getting the money? He's not raising taxes from the citizenship. He's taking it from the Lord's house. He's taking it from the tithes and the offerings that are in the house of the Lord. That's how bad it's gotten. So they're taking even the, the Lord's tithe. So the Lord said, if you would just repent, I'll provide all the protection you need. Now, we're going to see 
Hezekiah is going to do that because Assyria is going to come after Hezekiah, and Hezekiah is not going to pay tribute. And he's going to put his trust in the Lord, even though the king of Assyria is saying, don't listen to Hezekiah, and don't let him deceive you, saying, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. And that's exactly, though, what they do, and that's what Hezekiah does. They trust in the Lord, and the Lord brings about a great deliverance, and the Lord kills 185,000 of them in a single night by the angel of the Lord. But Ahaz and Pekah have no faith in God. And so God said in Deuteronomy 28, in verse 20, the curses would come. That if they did not obey the Lord and observe to do all his commandments, the Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Friends, that has not changed in the church. Jesus said to the Laodiceans, if you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going, he threatens churches to remove the candlestick from among them if they continue in disobedience. Jesus is not messing around. You know, we have a lot of churches. They've been probably already judged by the Lord and they don't even know it. They still meet, but the Spirit of God isn't in the place. He says here in uh, verse 25, the Lord says, the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. In verse 30, you shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. Why? Because they're being occupied. And, and the soldiers are taking advantage of their wives and they're taking advantage of their property. You will not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you and will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and you will have none to save you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, foreigners, unbelievers. Your children will be given to unbelievers. Why? Because you're being disobedient. Your eyes will look on them and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors. And you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. Friends, it hasn't changed. God's covenant is yes and amen in Jesus Christ for the church. And, and if we're not having success of the, by, of the, as a church, I mean, church with a capital C, church universal, then we need to repent. We have promises from God. Now, obedience can lead in cases to persecution. Yes, I'm aware of that. And can lead to sufferings. Yes, and imprisonments. Yes, Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you and insult you and say all kinds of things against you. But also, even through that, what happens? The church prospers. The church multiplies. The more they arrest the Christians in China, the, the more the church just keeps growing. 
And, and so we need to realize that um, this, this has implications for us. We, we must be a people who are examining ourselves and asking ourselves, are there ways that I can be more faithful to God? Are there, are there ways that I need to uh, change? Are there ways that I need to change? Are there things that I need to improve? Do I have some attitudes that need improvement? Do I have some, the way I use some of my time, my gifts? Are, are there people I need to reconcile with? Are there, are there things that I should be doing that um, I should not be doing? Are there things that I'm not doing that I should be doing? Are there sins of omission as well as commission? We should always be going before the Lord and, and seeking to improve our lives in our obedience to God. Because it's a sign of faith in the Lord. Now, the rise of the Assyrian power and their influence was not a good sign. It was a bad sign. And it should have led the people to look back at Deuteronomy and to reread Deuteronomy and to meditate on Deuteronomy and to think about Deuteronomy 28 in their own lives. Now, I want to move on to the second point here that we find in our chapter going back now to 2 Kings 16, and that is that the apostasy tragically now is seeming to spread down to Judah. You know, Galatians chapter 5, verse 9 says this. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, what does he mean by that? Is he giving some kind of cooking class here, baking class? No, but he is illustrating an important truth, and that is a little sin has a way of not staying little if it's left, if it's left unchecked, that little sin can spread, a little root of bitterness can spread into other areas so that then you have an increase in disobedience. And what we see is the apostasy that was beginning in the northern tribes is now starting to make its way under King Ahaz into Judah. Now notice that it involves the state as well as the priesthood, or I should put it the other way, it involves the priesthood as well as the state, I probably should say. Ahaz, we know, is a wicked king. But also what is surprising here is that when King Ahaz, and I'll set the table here, remember King Ahaz gives the money to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, comes, he rescues uh, Judah by doing what? Well, he makes war on Aram, and he attacks Damascus. He overtakes Damascus, and he kills the king in Damascus, and he, and he settles it. So Judah is relieved temporarily from the strife they were having with Pekah and Rezin. So what does King Ahaz do? King Ahaz makes a trip up to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser to say thank you. And as he goes up there, he sees an altar. And he apparently he's impressed by what he sees, so much so that he asks for a copy of the plans. And he sends them down to his priest, Urijah. And the priest, he, and he orders the priest to make this according to the plans so that we can have an altar like the one I see up in Aram. Which is odd, isn't it? Given that they just lost to tiglath Pileser. So anyway, Uriah, but then the, the priest, he does what? He goes ahead. He should have said no. Uriah should have said no, but the priesthood complies. And it can't be just him. I mean, there had to be multiple people involved in this project here. 
Now, what, what's wrong with making this for an altar? Well, several things. First of all, God had always told Moses, even when it was back in the days of the tabernacle, he told Moses, be careful how you construct the tabernacle. Do it exactly the way I tell you. Now, why does God, is God just this precisionist and, and, and you know, uh, wants it for that reason? The reason was because what he was giving here was a, was a type and a copy that pointed to the truth of what heaven is like. And so he was saying, I want you to be careful how you build this tabernacle and later how you build the temple because in a way it's a small replica of heaven. And so when the king and the priesthood come together and they begin to change the altar and they, they move the bronze altar that was the one that God had commissioned and they move it to a side so that only the king can use it, what are they doing? In a sense, they are, they are taking you away from Christ. Because what did the altar that the Lord gave to his people represent? What does that altar where they would put their sacrifices represent? It? Ultimately, it was pointing to Jesus and his work on the cross, is it not? And so if you're saying we can take this altar that the Lord has given us and put it to the side and we'll replace it with another foreign altar of our own making, in a way it's saying we don't need Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. There are many ways to God. See that? The Arameans can go to God their way and we can go our way and we can have two altars. and It doesn't matter which one. But friends, what does Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's an exclusivity, a uniqueness in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And what King Ahaz is doing and Uriah, by way of complicity, he, they are saying you don't need Jesus Christ. You don't need the altar of the Lord. You don't need the cross. You don't need the way that God has provided. You are free to invent another way to get to God. The altar points us to cross, to the cross. An introduction of foreign altars is the equivalent of introducing a theology into the church whereby you say it is not necessary to believe on Jesus. And so it is today. We have people in the church, people in the ministry who believe that it's, it's okay not to believe in Jesus Christ, that God is a forgiving God and God will forgive sins by some other way, maybe by way of general revelation, they say, that God will show himself to be good in the end and he will forgive people who would have accepted Jesus had they known about him. But what does the Bible say? Paul says the very opposite. He says, how shall they be saved unless they hear the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel unless a preacher be sent, a missionary be sent? a faithful missionary who preaches Christ and him crucified. And so the, what is the lessons for us? One is that the church has to be on guard against the introduction of practices that are foreign to Scripture. We may not introduce things that we find elsewhere and bring them into the church. It was interesting to read of an article 
uh, that was in the news some months ago at Union Seminary. Now that ought to ring a bell. Union Seminary was the place where the Auburn Affirmation was uh, composed and signed where ministers a hundred years ago said that it wasn't necessary to believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or in the miracles of Christ or the full deity of Christ in order to become a Christian. Well, that seminary this past year had a special worship service where they brought in all these plants into the center of the chapel and they sat around the plants and they had a service of confession of sins to the plants. Asking for forgiveness. Now, does man sin against God in his stewardship of this planet? Yes. But are we to have services where we go to plants and ask for their forgiveness? How did, how did a seminary get to that place? Well, they abandoned the cross of Christ long ago. They introduced foreign ideas. Let me just give you a couple applications. We'll close. First of all, young people, teenagers, uh, when you apply to schools or you go off into the workplace, uh, do me a favor as your pastor and look at the churches in the area, not just the school and how big the stadium is. Uh, look at, find out what's going on and is being preached in, in those churches where you're going. Make sure those churches aren't bowing to the pressure of the campus and introducing and adopting alien views and practices in, in faith or worship. Number two, I want us to leave us with a hope here. There is reformation, though, and that we'll leave for next week, but I, it was at the end of this chapter, and that is the reign of Hezekiah follows Ahaz. So that which we are reading about and lamenting here in this chapter, there is a ray of hope at the last verse of this chapter, isn't there? That he's going to have a son, and his son is going to be Hezekiah, and his son will be faithful. Third and finally, be familiar with the scriptures yourself. You know, you're not going to be able to judge whether something is foreign to scripture or not if you're not reading the Bible. You know, God has given you a nose for a reason. It's for your protection. So that when you open the fridge and you sniff the leftovers, you can judge. Some of you need to see a doctor. I can't believe you didn't smell anything last Wednesday night in this room. My whole throat is burning. You need to go see an otorhinolaryngologist. God has given you a spiritual nose, too. But it has to be trained. Just as God gives you a nose to alert you to potential danger to your body, God has given us discernment as his children, and that discernment is trained and built up by your reading and meditating on Scripture. You don't know if it's foreign if you don't know your Bible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Uh, the scriptures and pray, Lord, that the Spirit continue to preach.